Welcome to Network Collective. In this episode, we're continuing our series on MPLS. In addition to Nick Russo, Jeff Tensura is joining us to explore the details of traffic engineering in MPLS. Sit back, grab a caffeinated beverage, and line up your labels for another deep dive into multi-protocol label switching. Welcome back. Before we get started, we'd like to remind you about the Network Collective membership community. Join Network Collective as we take the next step to connect network engineers. With our community membership, we're bridging the gap between engineers in the trenches and the information they need to take the next step in their careers. This is your opportunity to be more than just a listener of Network Collective. For more information, visit thenetworkcollective.com and click on Join the Network Collective Community. Now let's get started. Today we're talking about traffic engineering with MPLS. And before we dive too deep, let's start off with the basics. Nick, can you kick us off? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. I think at the very basic level, we always need to start with the purpose. And what is the purpose of traffic engineering in general? And the way I like to think about it in like a couple words is we're gonna be able to do some kind of source-based routing where far away in the network, uh, rather than just look at a destination IP address or an MPLS, a topmost MPLS label across the long label switch path, we want to do something at the head end, maybe at the ingress PE or something like that, where we're going to, based on what the packet is or its contents or its QoS value, we're going to send pathic, uh, traffic down a different path in the network. Uh, there's a lot of advantages to this that we can talk about later, but I think it's good that we understand a little bit about how this technique works at a basic level. Traditionally, so, yeah, go ahead, Rob. So, Nick, the, I would say it's interesting you put it that way. I think the the key point there to me anyway is that you're trading off stretch. You're actually taking the less than optimal path from a shortest path perspective in order to get, bus. Yeah, to get something, to get to some other goal. So Your LSP tunnel might have only one hop, which is the last hop, and yeah. the rest is just uh, SPF-derived path. Yeah. So, so when you need to deviate from shortest path, you use traffic engineering. Yeah, right. That's a great, yeah, that's a great point. And of course, there's a lot of reasons to do that, and we can talk through that later. I think that traditionally, when most people think of MPLS traffic engineering, even though there's a newer and cooler technologies that uh, I know Jeff, for example, is an expert on those things, uh, my experience is mostly with the traditional method of using RSVP. And with RSVP, the general idea is uh, there's a lot of different messages, but there's really two ones that matter, I think, more than the rest. And the first one is the path message, which kind of flows from the tunnel head end to the tail, and it records the previous hop along the way. And it effectively is going to determine what that path is. And what I mean by that is based on our path calculation and the constraints, um, we'll talk about all the different constraints and all the nerd knobs that come with traffic engineering. Once we have identified that path, we need to signal it. So we'll, again, uh, increasing stretch going off the shortest path, the path messages will follow that exact path. And then from the tail end, the reservation message will come with the, pre, uh, the next hop included in that message and also the MPLS label binding. That's how the FIB gets its information to create that label switch path through the network, effectively tunneling traffic off the shortest path to achieve some kind of business goal. That's like the, the couple sentence version of, of how it works. 
Um, the interesting thing about it, and I know Jeff can talk some more about this, is that when we talk about RSVP and traffic engineering and uh, we do things like bandwidth reservations and other fun stuff like that, those reservations don't actually command the router to take any QoS activity or any enforcement. It's just a, a it's more like call admission control and more like a control plane reservation. And I think that trips up a lot of people. I've heard uh, some engineers say, well, if I just do TE and I manage my bandwidth reservations and I never overcommit anything, then I should never have congestion. Well, that's not necessarily true, especially if you have traffic that isn't in a TE tunnel, for example, just a regular LDP-based label switch path, or you've got other flows across your network that aren't MPLS encapsulated at all. So it's always a good idea to couple MPLS traffic engineering with, with real QoS in the network to get the enforcement that you want. I know, Jeff, you had some comments about that as well. Yeah, so a common way to do so is to apply policing on ingress at head end. So you make sure no more traffic than committed would flow into particular LSP. So yeah. you provide admission control in control plane as well as enforcement in hardware. Right, so, so what I think trips people up there is it's resource reservation protocol. <laughs> aren't, I, aren't I reserving resources? Um, no. You're not. And like Jeff said, you need to do something on the head end of that tunnel if you're going to do any sort of actual admittance control, which policing is probably the ideal thing in most situations. Um, there are other things you can do, but policing seems to be the ideal thing on most tunnel head ends to, uh, to actually make the resource reservation be useful in some way. So practically what happens when past message flows down the network it asks local database, hey, can you provide this particular resources? And if answer is yes, those resources get, get allocated and the answer back is yes. If not, the answer is yeah. no. Right. But it's pretty much it. You are talking to control plane and it's control plane's view, which is not necessarily what's de facto being used right. available. Exactly. So Nick, you had on your notes something about PCALC, running constrained SPF. That sounds really complex. Yeah, so constrained SPF, it's, it's really, you know, once you, once you look at your topology, and when we say shortest path, you know, we casually talked about shortest path before. What we generally were talking about in that context was kind of the shortest IGP path that we would traditionally look at in a world free from traffic engineering. But when we talk about constrained shortest path, we say take the full set of all links in the network. Now you're going to take basically a graph subset of what you had before after you apply the constraints that you want. If you say, I only want links that have this much bandwidth, or I only want links that uh, don't go through a certain node, or I only want links that are a certain color, and we'll talk about affinity a little bit later, you're going to end up with a subset of your original set of links. And then based on that, you'll find the shortest path again, using cost as the tiebreaker when there are multiple paths that meet your constraints. So constraint shortest path first, in my opinion, is really just a way of reducing what the graph looks like, given your specific constraints to take traffic off the original shortest IGP path and looking at the network from another angle with these additional constraints that restrict your ability to choose certain paths. Right. So constrained SPF is essentially constrained in the sense that when you're pushing things onto the tent or off of the tent onto the path list, you're actually only choosing links that meet a certain set of criteria. So it's not a full SPF. It's an SPF over a part of the topology or the entire link state database. Yep. And, and this runs on a point, basis. Yeah. F stands for free. So pass has to be loop free before it meets any other constraints or doesn't meet. 
right. you always compute positive loop free before it could go into next step computation. Right. Yep. Yeah, and I thought that I thought that was pretty interesting when I was first learning about traffic engineering because the idea that I could just take traffic off the shortest path, I can guarantee the paths are loop free, and I can also be very granular with how I steer traffic through the network to meet some kind of business need. I thought that could be a pretty powerful thing, but like most powerful things, it can be abused pretty badly as well. <laughs> yeah. So there's something in here about um, soft state. So talk a little bit about soft state and how that impacts or what that does um, with the entire resource reservation and with traffic engineering, because obviously we can go back to the state optimization surface thing. We're actually injecting more state in order to optimize something. Um, it's not following shortest path, like we said, it's running off of the shortest path. So we're increasing stretch, but we're optimizing something else. But that increased state, how is that? Uh, talk a little bit about how that needs to be refreshed, what's going on there in that soft state area. Yeah, so let's talk, the soft state protocol, and I think Jeff brought this up before the show, which is a great point about, this is just RSVP in general, is that soft state means that there needs to be continuous refreshes of that LSP and the RSVP signaling between the LSRs that are, that are part of that TE tunnel path. So for every tunnel in the network, the routers have to say, yep, I still need this tunnel. Yep, it's still alive. And that has to happen continuously along the whole chain for all, of, all the nodes. So with a tunnel or a network with thousands of tunnels is going to have tons of these refreshes, probably millions over the course of a couple minutes, um, constantly having to go through the network and do refreshes. So for those who ever work with multicast PIMs is also another uh, soft state protocol. But just to, you know, with the way the periodic uh, S comma G and star comma G joins and prunes and all that other fun stuff that comes with PIM, it's very similar with RSVP. And as Russ said, you know, for those who have read the, the network complexity book by Russ and Jeff, of course, uh, which, I, which I read and I thought it was excellent. You know, when we bloat the network core with all this state from RSVP, the gain that we hope to get is optimizing traffic flows. Maybe we're reducing costs by using excess capacity on unused links. There are a whole lot of different business drivers to do it, but the, the price you pay is state, not just in the amount of memory consumed on the router, but the amount of control plane traffic that has to be signaled between nodes as the number of LSP tunnels increases. And the rate at which that state changes, as you said, it needs to be refreshed. And as links change, things have to be recalculated around them. So there's actually a speed at which the state is increased in the network um, as you add state as well. So yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a really important point. And yeah. there's a significant number of surfaces and the complexity. So it's not only refreshes, it's also your control plane, your IGP, where your bandwidth and all the resources yeah. are distributed. Anytime there's significant change, all network needs to be updated and potentially it could trigger re-optimization at the head end. Tunnel needs to be resignaled or it could be 10,000 tunnels that needs to be resignaled at the same time. So amount of state if not only bad on itself when event happening in the network suddenly a lot of the tunnel needs to be changed at the same time which create peaks and cpu utilization peaks and all kind of weird behaviors yeah all right so when we're um next on the list is deployment when we're thinking about deploying uh mpls traffic engineering what are some things we need to consider I, I, the, the two main kind of overarching ways of going about deploying MPLS traffic engineering are the tactical approach, which is kind of a, a reactive duct tape. Hey, we need to work around this hotspot or this link is over capacity. So let's steer some of the uh, traffic off to the side. You know, we're going to deploy tunnels in a minimalist fashion and react to problems in the network. 
Um, and then the other approach is the strategic approach, which is the proactive approach, which says, we're gonna build in TE tunnels from the very beginning. Maybe it's part of a more comprehensive fast reroute strategy, which we'll probably talk about in another show. Maybe it's just part of um, the, the, the design in general. Uh, maybe we wanna use TE tunnels through our core at all times to take advantage of relatively expensive interpop links, maybe across the world. Uh, and then maybe in other parts of the network, we don't use TE at all, but that was all determined ahead of time. And as part of our overall network strategy, rather than, oh no, show up with these TE tunnels, which is the tactical. Now, the tactical one, even though the word reactive, we might kind of shun away from that word. I don't mean it in a negative sense, because for a lot of organizations that don't have a need for traffic engineering, it can still be useful on occasion to use TE to get yourself out of a pickle or to meet a specific business need. Now, of course, that comes with technical debt. It comes with state and optimization and surface trade-offs, and there are a lot of other considerations to just willy-nilly deploying traffic engineering. But I see those as kind of the overarching strategies uh, I don't know, Russ and Jeff, what you guys think about that or what you've seen out in the field? So strategic computation mostly done offline. So you export your database, you, you apply your logic to a networking graph, you pre-compute all the tunnels, and de facto you create an overlay network that goes over your physical infrastructure. So if you look at strategic tunnels in large network, they often look like completely different networks than what you really have in place. So planning capacity mostly uses strategic ones. Operational people usually use more tactical stuff. Something broke down, let me reroute my traffic. Which is just a reminder that all of our talk about networking overlays is really nothing new. It's something that we've been doing for a long time. <laughs> Yeah, that is true. Um, and like and like Jeff said, you know, when you're going to do a strategic design, you know, when you look at your your actual infrastructure of your links between nodes, and then you look at the TE overlays um, that your strategic computer came up with, they, again, they might be they might look completely different from a logical perspective. But assuming you've input all your business constraint information correctly, that could very well be the uh, a good design for your network. Yeah, yeah, and if you look at bus computation in general, it's it's quite interesting. It could take pretty much any constraint you can imagine as long as bus computed is loop free. So you might use a weather for wireless link. You might use cost and sense for uh, another link. So anything that could be expressed as a constraint could be included in a computation. So business logic could be expressed in very interesting ways. Yeah. So speaking of constraints, what are some other ones? If we're going to talk about constraints, we're moving to constraints. What are they? Um, I know there's something on this not on this list, which, which is always interesting to me, which is SLRG, um, shared risk link groups. Um, so I don't know. That's uh, that may be a deep topic. For <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I, I picked a couple kind of high level ones here. I think you're right that you know, like things like SRLG. So you know, just to clarify what that means for people, if you've got multiple links in your network but they share some kind of risk somewhere, so they have fate sharing. Maybe you've got two physical links that leave a router, but they converge at a WDM equipment, or maybe they're two different fiber cables that are inside the same conduit that leave yeah. the building at the at the same side of the building. Well, one backhoe or one person back in their car over that conduit could break both links. So you want to uh, handicap or penalize those links as being able to fail over for one another, because if one link fails, 500 milliseconds later, the other link may fail too. And it, it doesn't make sense for traffic to fail between those two, for example, if you're using fast reroute tunnels. 
Um, you know, a couple other constraints I think that are common, and one of them, another one I don't have on here that's very common is the TE metric. Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite. This is one of my favorites because it's so easy. All you really do is you say, well, I've got my IGP cost on every link in the network. I can specify my TE administrative weight. That's the uh, official name, but most people call it a TE metric. And I basically get two different metrics. So I can really easily say, okay, um, a low IGP cost corresponds with a high bandwidth, which is traditionally how we determine IGP cost in many networks. And maybe a low TE metric indicates a low latency link. So I might have a really fat uh, satellite communications pipe that would be a low IGP cost, but a very high TE metric due to the latency of it. And I might say that if I'm doing any kind of a QoS based traffic engineering, like uh, policy based traffic engineering, things like that, I may have a TE tunnel that avoids that link for the voice traffic, but it's perfectly valid for my best effort data. Um, and that's what TE metric can be used for. You know, other things like affinity, I kind of think of affinity as like the TE metric on steroids because instead of just one extra metric, you can color a link, any number of colors. I think it goes up to 256 different colors now, but initially I think it was like eight or something, 32. 64. 64, yeah, it's a, some power of two. But uh, you, can, you can color a link, um, you know, just by using numbers and, and hexadecimal masks. Different vendors implement it differently, but you can basically say uh, this traffic has to take a red path or a red, a path that's both red and blue and links can have multiple colors or no colors at all. And it's kind of an advanced technique, but it's a really cool one when you want to get granular with your path selection. Uh, you can also have bandwidth as a constraint. I think we talked about that a little bit earlier about different links can have different reservable bandwidth, which doesn't have to be the actual bandwidth on the link. You could have a reservable bandwidth and uh, like Jeff said, ingress policing at the ingress provider edge would be able to ensure the uh, enforcement of that that traffic is using the bandwidth that it, it reserved. Uh, about two years ago, we've, yeah. uh, there are two new RFCs that provide some additional set of metadata across the network being uh, jitter delay, being unidirectional bandwidth. So uh, bandwidth available is very traditional old metric, one of the first one. Uh, implemented when TE became available. I think that was yeah. I think that was the original point behind TE, wasn't it? Was to allow providers, particularly transit providers, to optimize their bandwidth because long haul links are so expensive. And what you want to be able to do is you want to be able to get your bandwidth utilization up as high as possible by using. But it has nothing to do with real yeah. use of the link. So yeah. the more recent techniques to signal providers' ability to signal the real de facto utilization of the link yeah. as well as delay on the link, which is important. We all talk about low latency services, 5G, VR, AR, all of the service could use information that's distributed throughout this new technique to build paths that is low latency. Yeah, cool. Yeah, and I think the, the most uh, kind of elementary and simple thing is, and probably the, probably the hardest to manage, at least for people. Now, if you have a machine that does it, it's not so bad, but the, the explicit path, which is basically the, the explicit route object or the ERO, that's part of the RSVP path message, a little bit too detailed, but basically inside that, you can just enumerate every hop along the path that you want to traverse and just forget about all, this other, all these other fun constraints and just administratively say, I want to go this way. Or you can even say, I want to avoid this link or avoid this node. That might be really, in my experience, using that, uh, those kind of techniques are really useful in the tactical uh, TE uh, deployment because then you can say, well, the link between router six and seven is the one that's the hotspot. So I can just say, avoid, avoid that link. 
and and the TE tunnel will do that. And it'll go some other way that you don't care about. You don't have to worry about all the other TE stuff. So there's quite a lot of flexibility there. And almost all of these different techniques can be combined together for even for what probably amounts to an unlimited combination of different uh, permutations of these different features. Yeah, and faster outcomes on top of that in all different flavors, which we are going to cover in next show, I believe. Right? Yeah, yeah, fast reroutes fun um, for sure. And there's a lot of this. A lot of this comes into play there. Yeah, yeah, fast reroutes really cool. But we'll try to save it for next time. I almost started asking questions about it, and then I stopped myself. <laughs> Good job, Russ. A lot of people have deployed CPT for faster route only. They don't do traffic engineering. They do nothing. They just protect links and hubs. Yeah, I've seen that as well. I know uh, a friend of mine works in an ISP in Europe, and they have some they have some extensions of their network into uh, into the Middle East, and that's that's precisely what they use it for. Uh, but next on here, I think it's pretty pretty interesting is the the class based and tunnel uh, class based policy based tunnel selection. I talked about this a little bit earlier. This is the technique where you can basically map MPLX uh, MPLS EXP or experimental values into certain T tunnels. I like to think of it as just QoS based MPLS traffic engineering. So at the ingress PE. You kind of have a gatekeeper who says, okay, EXP5 voice traffic go into tunnel 10 and all the other data traffic go over here. And these two different tunnels are two different constraints. Maybe one of them takes uh, the, uh, the lowest TE metric for the low latency for voice. And the other one takes the lowest IGP metric through the network inside of TE tunnels. Maybe there are different constraints for those tunnels, but the PE will separate the traffic based on the QoS value. Uh, this is a technique I personally like a lot. I think it's extremely valuable and I've used it a little bit in production, um, mostly to separate voice traffic away from the rest of data to use low latency links to deliver vo uh, better voice quality, especially across long haul. Or, or video. Video, yeah, video too, yeah. Yeah, the interesting thing about video is of course, it's a lot more greedy and less benign than voice. So you also have to consider the bandwidth kind of component for video as well. Whereas voice, you know, if you have a huge call volume, you'll see a lot of bandwidth there, but at least in terms of the, the predictability of it, you can typically know how much bandwidth it is. So video can be a little bit challenging. And this yeah. is really network slicing. You provide slice that works for a particular type of traffic, right? Nothing new under the moon. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, isn't this what ATM used to do? Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hurt again. <laughs> How old are you again? <laughs> Not old enough. <laughs> oh, thanks, Yvonne. <laughs> that was for you, Russ. <laughs> oh, and Nick, he didn't say anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was stunned. I didn't. <laughs> See, that's the thing. I was, ATM was before my time, so it's like I can laugh at him, but it's really not funny because I don't know it. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it could be a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't miss much, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I know you guys want to move on to uh, DSTE. Talk a little about that. Yeah, let's talk about DSTE. Yeah, this is, a, this is a pretty interesting one because one of the things that confused me, again, when I was first learning about traffic engineering years ago was I hear about diff serve TE and I was like, oh, that's QoS traffic engineering. No, it's not actually. Uh, DSTE, the idea of DSTE is actually pretty brilliant. The idea is when we talk about bandwidth reservations, there might be different kinds of bandwidth we want to reserve. So for example, maybe I have uh, a detailed QoS policy in the core of my network and 
I have 30% of that link bandwidth allocated for voice and the other 70% divided up some other way. In terms of the reservable bandwidth though, I have, let's, let's call it a one gig link. So, uh, you know, I've got 30%, so 300 megs for voice and 700 for everything else. I don't just want to have a thousand megabits or, you know, a gig available for reservation because what kind of traffic can reserve it? So what DSTE allows you to do is to create different pools or different uh, class types for your reservations. So you can say within my voice class type or my voice bandwidth available for reservation is 300 megs and the data is 700 megs, or maybe the data is a thousand, but voice can preempt it. Uh, there's a lot of different fun ways to do this. It can get quite complicated. There's a few different models involved that are probably too much to get into on a, on a podcast. But the thing that really is, is important here is the different class types. Uh, you know, you can have up to eight, most vendors support two or four. Uh, each one will have its own kind of bandwidth constraint, determines how much bandwidth each class type can use. And it's effectively just a way of separating your bandwidth pool into different, uh, different reservable flavors, if you will. And this combines really well, in my opinion, with the class-based tunnel selection we talked about before, because now you can have your red links and your blue links, but when they converge over the same link and you want to do some kind of reservation for voice versus data traffic, they can reserve bandwidth, but from different pools. So if you've got 300 megs of voice traffic, you don't want to send more voice traffic over that link. Why? Because your QoS policy is only guaranteeing low latency queuing for that first 300 megs. And anything more than that, depending on your vendor and your implementation, could be dropped or could get worse performance. And the last thing you want to do is have VoIP calls where some percentage of the traffic is incurring latency or getting dropped and then all the calls are bad. So this is why I kind of like this feature. It gives a little more granularity to the bandwidth reservations that happen in the network. And in the event that you do want to do some overloading in the core and you want to put a more complex QoS policy in there, this gives you some flexibility to do that. So I'll be honest, Russ, I've actually never deployed this in production or Jeff, I don't know if you guys have any uh, war stories to tell about it. All times buggy as hell, but. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. So, don't don't, don't try this at home, kids. That's what that means. <laughs> uh, especially if you were doing it before 12 to S, it was really disastrous. But besides <laughs> the point, uh, RCPT machinery comes with a number of important metrics, being setup metric and preemption. So when there's contention for resources, you would always look at priority of the tunnel and whether it could be preempted. So imagine you've got a best effort tunnel and suddenly gold customer comes in and there's contention. So if gold tunnel is allowed to preempt has higher priority, it would actually preempt and shut down the best effort tunnel. So there's some play within RCPT state machine across different tunnels based on priorities set during setup of the LSP. Important to know. Yeah, and I think that's an important point too. And I know we didn't get too much into it, uh, Jeff and Russ, about the you know the different models. But you know when it comes to preemption, you know if uh, you know to use my example, if all one gig of that traffic was reserved for data, but in comes your gold customer or your voice traffic, and it needs to make a reservation. Well, as long as there's 300 megs available for that voice some other LSP is going to be uh, preempted and it's going to be forced to recalculate another path. Right. And that voice traffic is going to be able to choose that link, um, which is of course going to cause uh, a little bit of a, a, a bullwhip effect on that tunnel that got preempted. But again, that's why we have different service classes so that our highest priority traffic is through the network. And you know, the, the whole idea of QoS is, 
I think somebody described it as uh, intentional unfairness, which is exactly what this is. <laughs> it's, it's actually called, I'm, I don't want to throw bandwidth at the problem, but that's another entire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me what to throw away first. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Tell me what to throw away first. Well, it creates an additional layer of complexity, the semi-dynamic behavior in the network where tunnels could come up, could go, and you don't necessarily always understand why. I mean, you've configured maybe a year ago, but this stuff is somehow working, and it's important to understand not only how your current network looks like, but how it might look if something significantly changes. Yeah, and that's part of the problem with these dynamic sorts of things is that once you get into it, the network is doing things, you look at it, and you don't actually know what the signal should look like to do any troubleshooting. You're just sitting there going, that's what it looks like, but what should it look like? I don't know. It's all dependent on what the state was before and what traffic is being driven into the network. So it's really hard for me to look at it and say, yeah, that's right or that's wrong. Yeah, that, that's what makes it, you know, the nice thing, I mean, RSVP is kind of a double-edged sword. You know, the, the yeah. thing about it is that, you know, even without a controller or a central brain, it's generally fully distributed. And of course you'll do configuration at the head end of a tunnel, but good luck figuring out what's going on in the network. I mean, the protocol has the smarts to work, but you as a person still need to understand it. And when tunnels get preempted and then you jump in, you know, you're not just dealing with five or 10 tunnels, you're dealing with five or 10,000. Uh, in a large network and that can be very difficult for someone to jump in and look at what's going on without some kind of machine assistance for sure so and before we move we move to newer stuff the complexity was also kind of even higher because every head end would compute separately so traditionally we've used routers as computation engines to compute lsps so it would have no idea what other router is doing it has no idea how network looks like and so when we cover and neither, new stuff, and neither does the person looking at it which is what drives some of this new stuff that we're going to talk yeah. about right is that when you actually try to manage a large scale or a when you try to manage a transit network at scale and you start looking at having 10, 20, 30,000 routers in there, and you have all these edge routers computing stuff, and you're trying to figure out where all these paths are going, it gets like, just, you get blurry eyed after a while. You just can't even tell, like, what, what does this even mean? If there are 5,000 tunnels on this router, and you're like, good. So <laughs> which one am I looking at, and why? And how do I troubleshoot that? And there are some tools, of course, used to try to figure some of that out in PLS ping and trace route, stuff like that. But it's still, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. Per box you would make troubleshooting pretty much impossible because yeah. of just physically number of tunnels per device and lack of communication. And, you know, it just box with tunnel and next box has different tunnel correlations, pretty much impossible. Yep, exactly. Yeah, so maybe this is a good time to start talking about uh, how we solve those problems with things like segment routing and PCE. So I think one of you guys should probably do the intro for that one because I'm, uh, I'm probably the least experienced in that. So uh, since I, I you mentioned all the problems with – do you want to continue, Chris? Oh, I was going to say, I think I would actually start with PSEP on that because that actually yeah. takes it off box. That's the, that's the first simplification uh, attempt or mechanism. So – while it's kind of obvious you should be computing paths and apply them to network, we've been doing boxes for 20 plus years, right? So when HallSD and movement started, obviously it wasn't only on OpenFlow site in 
real networking, <laughs> we started changing things as well. One of them was logical centralization, centralization of control plane. Ability to take network or network graph, have centralized view and apply services to a network as a whole, not per box. And PC was one of the first uh, technology, technologies we use. So PC stands for Pass Computation Element, and it uses protocol to communicate called PSAP or Pass Computation Element Protocol. So traditionally, PC as function has been stateless and passive. So a router would tell PC, hey, I want a tunnel. This is the uh, information about the network. Those are the constraints. Compute it and give it back to me. PC would compute it, give it back, and forget about it. So what has changed, we introduce stateful PC. What it means, PC has full view near real time on the network. When which, we ask, which means reservations, which means link state, which means everything. utilization, everything. Everything you can get off the interface that the controller can suck up and use. In some the more way. you know, the better your computation is going yeah, to be. Exactly. Otherwise, garbage in, garbage out. Yes. Yeah. So, did, you, did you mention the, uh, the, the, our favorite protocol that we use to carry that information? I didn't. I don't know if I heard it, but the, the is this the BGP link state stuff that carry that? Back? I don't know. That's yeah, we'll, not, we'll, we're we'll, not there yet. Oh, we're, we're not, not there, there yet. Okay, I didn't know if that was different. Yeah, that's different. Yeah, PCF yeah, is different. So okay. we need to populate all the information on PC server. So pretty much every LSDB has to be exported, and this is how you build your graph. Or or the controller has to participate in your IGP. And Which that's, is painful in multi-area deployments because right. normally your controller would be hooked up into a single area right. and then you would need to build jury tunnels or some other backward technique to provide right. all the LSDB information from another areas. And of course, if you're running ISIS, which is what a lot of transit providers are running, jury tunnel has to be able to carry Ethernet you got to be able to carry it as Ethernet because ASIS is its own Ether type instead of running on top of IP. So that makes the problem very, very complex. So you have this multi-area deployment and you're running ISIS in all these different flooding domains and the controller is sitting in the central, central part of the network. Perhaps it's sitting in a data center as a spun VM or something or a container and it needs all the topology information it can get from all the routers, 10,000 routers in the network. Like I said the simplest way to do this to start is just to connect everybody to ISIS and just suck up the LSTVs from every, every flooding domain. But that's not so simple if, you know, you look at the way it really works is I have to have some way of getting to all these flooding domains. So what you got to do is you got to tunnel out to those. And it's a very complex problem to solve. Um, so that's where the next thing that you were talking about, Nick, comes into the picture, which is how do you solve that problem? You're streaming to Kafka bus. <laughs> but, yeah, you're streaming but to Kafka bus. Which actually, you know, is not a bad idea. Or ZeroMQ or RabbitMQ or something like that. Beautiful idea. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. But so for some reason, we love this other protocol so much. <laughs> Called KSP. Yes. <laughs> or, or stuff or stuff transport protocol but it used to be called bgp <laughs> so let's take a step back what we did in pc world we created stateful pc it also became active so remember it used to be passive in a way the lsp would still be governed and provisioned by the head end or the router in the new sdn world PC is the governance 
of the LSPs on the network. So PC would compute LSP, it would download the information to the head end, it would keep the state, and if needed, decommission or reoptimize. So if you look at today's network, in most cases, you've got PC that's also connected to some kind of SDN controller or business logic, the OSS BSS layer that uh, commands PC to compute paths of particular characteristics that's being downloaded to the network. So pretty much uploaded this functionality from the routers today. And we also introduced ability to delegate LSPs. So even if router computes it, it could always delegate it to a PC as a function. Yeah. And there are a number of RFCs we will include in the notes that describe this functionality. So PSAP, PSAP is essentially a southbound protocol. Um, we can be considered a southbound protocol in the, in the software-defined world, software-defined networking world. Mostly, um, yes, sir. the beauty of PSAP, it's very well-defined. And mm -hmm. when you talk northbound, if something goes wrong, there's always feedback loop. So when we write a PC or PSAP draft, and I've done many, we always have large section on error codes, what happens if something happens. So you know always where you are. And this is quite different from using BGP to distribute policies where you distribute it, then you hope it works because there is no feedback loop. Yeah, so because you don't cases, know if something was installed. In many cases, you would need to decide whether you're going to use BGP or PSAP to distribute policies. You should always think about feedback loop. How do I know what my network is doing? How do I know whether policy, I think, is applied, is actually applied. So my applied state is my operational state. PSAP from this perspective is very good protocol. But, but it's a very different world because you're basically pulling your control plane off the box, right? Which is what, uh, we're, what we're used to. Well, kind no, of. Only, only computational part. Yeah, only computation. So, so in this world, your IGP and your, BG, and your EGP or BGP will actually still compute shortest paths. It will still... No, it will still detect link failure, node failure, all of that stuff. It does everything that you're normally used to. And it actually does label distribution or whatever else you want it to do. But what you're doing is you're taking the policy overlay, just the policy overlay, the not shortest path traffic, and shoving it into tunnels. And PSEP is building or determining, doing the constrained SPF to build those tunnels across the network, to build the overlay dynamically. So... So it's, a, it's a separation of distribution and policies done right. We yeah. still distribute all the information through routing protocol. So it's done distributed in the network. You're not trying to centralize that. But if centralized, it's really computation logic and decision process. And right. it's logical because it's off network. You could throw more CPU, more memory on this. And computation in large network could be quite compute intensive. Yeah. Yeah. So, Russ, if, if we were going to tie this back to uh, the uh, the art of network architecture book that you wrote a few years back, and I still remember your four SDN models there, I think this one probably qualifies as a as an augmented one where we're using yeah. the, the software defined overlay type process through the PSAP southbound protocol, programming nodes at the edge of the network with a specific overlay, everything else in the network, you know, we will talk segment routing here in a little bit, but that's, you know, in, in terms of state retention, that there's no more core state, those individual core LSRs aren't tied in back to the centralized controller. They still distribute all the traffic engineering information through IGP, like Jeff said. So it's really, uh, it's really our existing distributed network 
network and all the benefits of that with kind of a targeted injection of this uh, software defined overlay at the edge in order for right. us to steer traffic efficiently. So I, that's how I kind of view it. And yeah, if the problem goes away, your traffic still works just fine on the latest information distributed. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So yeah, so this is this is very this is um, I guess it's SDN before or maybe at the same time SDN OpenFlow was invented, but OpenFlow is more strict because it's talking to the fib. You really can't do the hybrid model or the augmented model of OpenFlow because of the way it works. Like there's no feedback like Jeff is talking about. Like I can't see what's in the routing table. With PSEP, I can see what's in the routing table, which is really useful. So next step is to get all this information back, or not back actually, on the PC. So on the controller, we need to build LSDB, we need to build TED, we need to build networking graph. And there are many ways of doing so. So one of them was to include a controller in your IGP domain, but then building tunnels and we described the complexity of that. So what we did in ATF a number of years ago is created extensions to BGP called BGP link state. BGP link state is nothing else than transport for your IGPs so we use, we redistribute your LSDB into BGP using BGP formatic. If you can't figure out what to do with the information, throw it in BGP. Yes. <laughs> so we use BGP semantics to encode all this information, and then it could be distributed to any place we like, including our PC or SDN controller. So by receiving all this information, controller is capable of building complete networking graph. So as we know, BGP doesn't limit itself to areas. It can provide information from any place. It just requires yeah. connectivity. Right, because it's so, TCP, it's over the top anyway, so you can just build a multi-hop session from BGP if you want to. You don't have to even redistribute it throughout your BGP domain. You're just actually building targeted BGP sessions to carry BGP LS information to essentially suck the LSDB off of two or three routers in each flooding domain, carrying them back to the PCE, and then allowing the PCE to, to rebuild the LSDB locally. And the beauty of solution, it's your existing infrastructure. You have already probably deployed your router reflector, so you would just use exactly the same infrastructure yeah. to piggyback this data back to the controller. Right. You would just reflect it through your router reflector and then just carry it right back to the controller. And so you're, you're really just using BGP as information transport. Yep. yep that's it's it. just another distributed database, which is why we said Kafka. 0MQ, RabbitMQ, any of those could do the job the same. Um, but people are familiar with BGP, so we tend to throw it at BGP. And it's already deployed, and you have the infrastructure, like Jeff said, of having your route reflectors and stuff already there. So implementation is complicated, especially with ASS and fragmentation, but eventually we got it right. I think it took two or three years to build proper code, and interoperability was an issue, actually still an issue when you try to hook up. Cisco, Juniper, ODL, and some other stuff. Yeah, it still is. It still is. It, it's quite day. complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated even to this day. And so there are some now, vendors that don't support it. So now we, we've got pretty much all the pieces. We've got all the network information centralized. We've got logic centralized. But before segment routing came around, we still had to compute tunnels download tunnel information to headend, and then headend would signal a tunnel in a way Nick explained and create all the state and you know 
we are back. So what has happened? Segment routing came around and in few words, segment routing removes all the state from the network. State is now in the packet itself. What it means for traffic engineering, you cannot do any computation in the network itself. There's no state. There's nothing to compute up on. So using controller for segment routing traffic engineering is mandatory because the state in the controller now, so you export all your topology, and obviously we introduce segment routing extensions to BGPLS to not only export your topology, but also segment routing labels and adjacent to seats and any seats so, actually we've got today. So maybe we should actually explain what segment routing does. Essentially what you do is you build a per hop label stack or potentially a per hop label stack. It doesn't have to be per hop, but the simplest case is a per hop label stack. And you basically describe the path through the network hop by hop. Hey, if you're familiar with token ring source routing. <laughs> it's, I'm it's, not, it's, I wish I were. A very important uh, difference if you use a CPT your LSDB has all the information to yeah, be well, a yeah. constrained tunnel, Come on. right? Token, now, token ring explorers are pretty elegant, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> now your reachability information is completely decoupled from resource available in your network. So you need a centralized place to bring them together and compute something that makes sense. Right. So you just use RSVP to find a path through the network or not. It may be all in the controller segment routing. You may just be able to suck up all the information out of the LSDB, all the interface stuff, shove it right into your controller, use PSAP or some other protocol. It doesn't have to be PSAP in this case. Um, use BGPTE or some um, SRTE or something like that to shove the label stacks down. And all you're doing is in the header of the package, you're actually describing the entire path of the packet all the way through hop by hop well it doesn't have to be hop by hop like i said but it could be hop by hop it's simplest to think about it as hop by hop first um, so interesting implication back to admission control if in rsvp case at least you had an entity a tunnel you could apply some policies to now you've got nothing so your state is on the controller it's not right. on the device itself. So now you need to figure out how to police traffic, how to enforce that traffic that goes into particular, right. what we call SR, SRT policy or tunnel doesn't exceed what has been computed. So it brings additional level of complexity to traffic engineering with segment routing. Right. In one case, or on one side, you reduce, you reduce the state and simplify the network. On another side, you've introduced additional complexity because of lack of state in the network. But someone right. had to do it. So, so Russ, I think, I think the one thing, um, just correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty confident in order for segment routing to work, uh, you know, rather than distribute labels through, through dedicated protocols like RSVP traffic engineering or label distribution protocol, LDP, we extend our IGPs to carry labels for all of our node SIDs and our prefix SIDs, so our segment IDs through the network, so that we're basically extending IGP to do label allocation instead of an overlay protocol like LDP. Yeah. Um, and then that is gonna, what's going to get carried back through BGP back to the controller because, again, if we're embedding the state in the packet itself, we're doing uh, an in-band 
signaling, if you will, because the, the core doesn't have the state anymore. And then when the packet carries that state, we need to get that back to the controller somehow without overlay protocol. So that's my understanding of why we have to extend right. IG. Well, there's an ITF draft in, um, it's pretty much, it's very close to become RFC. Uh, it describes extensions to BGPLS to include not only your prefixes, but also seats allocated to prefixes. So, so segment IDs. So, but the key thing there is the reason for that, Nick, is that we've actually gone from having the way MPLSTE was originally set up was you had a very small label space. So people thought you might run out of label space. So you actually can reuse labels throughout your entire, entire network. So you can use label 100 at every hop and you're just swapping label 100 at every hop and that can describe an entire path. In SR, every router and every interface has a unique label that's globally unique to the network itself. So that's how you can describe the entire path this way. So you can actually say hit router 100, hit router 200, hit router 300, or you can say hit router 100 on interface 200 and then go to router 300 on interface 400 or whatever the case might be so that you have this concept of actually having a global label space. So now instead of being able to do something like label distribution protocol, which is designed primarily to carry my labels upstream so that I know what what label to send downstream a particular packet to hit a particular queue or a particular destination, now I've got to have a, the entire label space. I've got to know every router in the network. So it's a different realm. So that's why you end up moving from something like LDP to um, using an IGP for your label distribution. So have there been any, any hardware? I, I know there, I know the answer is yes, but I figured I'll ask because, uh, because I don't, I don't follow hardware too much, but you know, we, we typically in, in carrier networks with RSVP TE, we tend to see label stacks of two, three, four, five. Uh, you know, when we got fast reroute, maybe we're doing some carrier supporting carrier. Maybe we've got flow aware transport labels for pseudo wires. Yeah. Typically, <laughs> You could never go over seven labels, I believe. For right. And now we're up to with segment routing, that number can can really explode. So have there been any kind of hardware developments to accommodate that growth of, of the basically the state in the packet? You know, if I'm making lots of turns in the network, you know, more than 16 turns, I'm going to have 16 labels or so. So what, uh, what kind of things have been uh, have we done to address that? So uh, some time ago, we've started working on a framework called MSD, Maximum Seed Depth. It's about to become RFC. There are three different documents covering OSP, FISS, and BGP, and probably a good idea to cover it into one of the upcoming. Because uh, what we really do, we either get this information from hardware API, so configure them. We really configure and distribute through IGP information about how many labels can be pushed. So when this information goes to PC because PC is in charge of computing a path. It will take it as a constraint. So imagine your path requires five or six labels in the label stack and your hardware can do only four. The worst thing you could do is still try to configure it and then start dropping traffic somewhere in the middle way. So yeah. there are different ways to work on this. One of them is to use binding seed yeah, I think would be great discussion for another presentation. Practically, if you look at uh, a Broadcom Silicon data center, so SGX line will give you four to six labels. Uh, Jericho, which is DNX product line, will give you seven today, up to 13, 14 Jericho 2. If you look at vendors Silicon, Probably Alcatel would be the furthest away with 14 labels. 
I believe Trio would be somewhere 10 plus and CISC uh, somewhere in this area as well. So there are always limitations and it's important to have control plans that is clever enough to give us knowledge what is supported and computation to be clever enough to compute a path that doesn't exceed maximum number of labels supported. And SRV6 right. is another story where it's even more complicated, but we're not <laughs> going to go into this yet. <laughs> All right, Yvonne. Yep, I think that's it. We've, uh, <laughs> we've covered a lot there. I think there's going to be a lot of Googling after this show um, <laughs> for our folks out there. Um, before we uh, sign off, I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to tell people where to find you. Nick, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at NickRusso42518 or my website, njrusmc.net. And that has been newly updated. Nick's got some great links and, and some very uh, old cool school yeah. HTML out there. Um, very minimalist. It's, it's great stuff. And Jeff, where can we find you? Uh, my platform of choice is LinkedIn. This is where I mostly blog and share some information. Uh, so just get connected and follow me. Cool. Awesome. And what about you, Russ? Routing Geek. I'm actually on Twitter once a day now because of Yvonne. It's her fault. It's my fault now that Russ is accosting people on Twitter. <laughs> but you can always find me at rule11.tech and you can find me on LinkedIn and you can find me at the Network Collective always, right? Yep. That's it. And you can find me on the blog at esharp.net or on Twitter at Sharp Network. Just another quick reminder to check out Network Collective, our membership options. We have a pretty active Slack channel going where our members get together and discuss the things that are going on in, uh, in their networking lives. And several of our uh, guests and all of the hosts are there. So we would uh, we'd love to have you come join us and talk more networking. Um, we'll see you again at Network Collective soon.